That's a classic. <laughs> oh, shit, I'm recording. Oh, sorry about that, guys. I just had some mates over watching the new Where Do We Begin YouTube channel. And I've got to say, the content on there is absolutely hilarious. Um, it's got unseen stuff, stuff that you will not see anywhere else. It's got full episodes. It's got highlights. It's got behind-the-scenes footage. It's got all kinds of stuff on there. And I'm going to promise you something. I'm a whole lot funnier on video than I am on audio. Granted, that is not much of a feat, but you can see for yourself how fun I am if you subscribe right now at Where where do we begin on YouTube? But I should get into today's episode for you because it is another cracker. Uh, it's another bonus episode for you. Uh, as always, I'm Harper, only host for today, as I will be in these bonus episodes. We've had a couple quiz bonus episodes in today, in the last two days, sorry. But in this bonus episode, we have got something a bit different. There are lots of people that we've had on the show that are Australian sporting icons representing our country on their national, international stage, wearing the green and gold or uh, covering the green and gold. So we've put in the highlights of our episodes with them. Uh, People at World Cups, Olympics, World Championships, uh, all kinds of things, just heroes of Australia and sport. So we're going to kick things off with one of my favorite interviews. I believe it was episode seven. Uh, with the great man, uh, the voice of football in Australia. If you have ever listened or watched a a football game uh, in Australia, you know Simon Hill and his lovely voice and the lovely guy he is. Uh, So here's a little highlight from a famous night. Uh, Simon talking about a famous night uh, in November 2005 in episode seven of Where Do We Begin? So you did mention the Uruguay-Australia qualifier. We do have a bit of an audio grab from that game. can score this goal Australia will be there here's Aloisi for a place in the World Cup he scores so obviously being one of those where were you when this happened moments how did that feel to be the voice of it well, to be honest, as I've said on many previous occasions, that wasn't my favourite commentary, to be honest. Um, it was a pretty difficult night. I was jet-lagged because I'd been in Montevideo for the first, like, just four or five days prior to that. So I was tired. Um, and Craig Foster, of course, my co-commentator, as you can hear on that little graph, was, was very, very emotional and sort of... Um, you know, yelped all over my call at various points during <laughs> the 120 minutes and the penalties. So it, it was a tough night. Um, look, it's a, a wonderful thing to be associated with, and I, I don't I don't know how many times I've heard that call down the years. Must be in the hundreds. Um, I actually prefer the calls at, at the World Cup in 2006 to that. But uh, yeah, it, it was a lovely moment, a great night. Um, and I think the question I get asked most is, oh, so you must have had a big night. Like, Where did you go to celebrate? Hey, I went to bed. I was cool. <laughs> I don't think I even had one beer. <laughs> well, um, so you talked about Foz's, um emotions, but you were a fairly recent immigrant at the time. Did you have much of an attachment to the Socceroos then? Um, to a certain extent, but, but obviously not the same as somebody who's born here. And it's probably still the same now, but in some ways... You know, that's no bad thing as a commentator because ostensibly you are supposed to be neutral. 
um, even if you're, you know, commentating to a domestic audience. So I, I think it helps to have a certain sense of detachment. Of course, I want the national team to do well. Um, you know, if I feel any connection to an Australian sporting team, it's the Socceroos because I've I've called so many of their games down the years, and I'm very passionate, almost evangelical about you know, promoting football and, and uh, realising football's potential in this country. So, yeah, of course I want them to do well, but um, am I a fan in the same way that somebody born here is? No, of course not. Um, you know, I was born elsewhere, um, and my country's England. So uh, I think that's only natural. But as I say, I think in, in some respects that's no bad thing. Jeez, how good was that? Like, Simon Hill, what a talented guy he is. I'm sure... He'll disagree with this, but he just seems like the kind of guy who is just amazing at whatever he puts his mind to. He's just such an amazing person and a role model as a journalist and broadcaster. So I can't thank him enough for coming our humble coming on our humble little show right at the very beginning. Uh, but moving from one uh, football icon in Australia to another, this guy is a hero of the Socceroos. Forty six caps as captain for the national team 84 in total he's just a legend of the Socceroos throughout the 80s and 90s especially goes by the name of Paul Wade and just a little shout out to Paul if he was listening good luck with your rehab mate because he had an ankle replacement operation uh just a few days ago I believe so I hope he's on the mend I hope he's doing well uh but in this excerpt from episode 29 with the great man Paul Wade he spoke about uh some other surgery he had uh, quite a few years earlier, uh, really life-changing stuff. And not only that, uh, he's clearly not a guy who retires from sport and just faffs about doing nothing, twiddling his thumbs, because he changes other people's lives as well. He's a real role model, inspirational person, uh, like everyone else in the show. It's a cliche, but I truly believe that so many people that we've had on the show are just so inspiring and have changed my life for the better. I'm hopeful they've changed yours. But anyway, I'll crack in to this next excerpt, this next highlight. Paul Wade, episode 29. Enjoy. You're involved in schools and stuff now and school programs. Is that correct? Yeah, I work with kids who are year 9, 10, 11, 12. They have all sorts of issues, as you can well understand. They don't have to know football, like football, uh, but it's the life skill, the story behind it, like marking Maradona and dealing with anxiety or dealing with the the stress of having brain surgery and how to recover from that and still work in the media. Yeah, brain surgery. What did you actually have done? I'm really intrigued by that. Yeah, you can see. I don't know whether you can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the good thing is that, um, yeah, I am going bald so I can show the scar. They cut me from there to there, pulled the front of my face down, took out part of my front temporal lobe the size of two matchboxes and stitched me back up again, but it got infected right there. So I had to go back into hospital, get the infected bone out, and then months later have this steel plate put in in the hole in my head. So I spent five months in hospital on a drip. Uh, But, you know, as I tell everyone, the hero is my wife. Val's the hero in all of this. Because she was the one who had to look after the three girls and get a job and make sure the kids were looked after when they got home and worry about whether her husband was going to die. 
you know what I mean? What a strong woman. Yeah. What a strong woman yeah. that is. So I'm sitting in hospital. I've got a big fat Cuban cigar. You know, my meals are delivered. I've got a great bed. Yeah, nah, she's the hero. I feel like, I feel like in a lot of times, like obviously when somebody's sick, they forget about the partner because the partner suffers just as much as that person. Like everybody's exactly. worrying about you, but then sometimes they forget about poor Val who's doing all this and as well as dealing with the grief of what you're going through. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I I have so much respect for single parents, but when you add the fact that your husband. Mm-hmm. mothers to take them after school and give them something to eat or help them with their homework while she sweated in hospital while I was on a drip. So, yeah, it takes more than one person, but that, gee, that person has to be strong. And we're all going to be tested, right, boys? You yeah. probably haven't had your test, but it will come and you will pass, but you'll need somebody else to help you. Yeah, how, how did you deal with your like all that anxiety and stuff you were talking about? Obviously, big motivational speaker now in schools and all kinds of stuff. But how, how did you deal with your mental health to pass through that challenge, like you mentioned? Yeah, it's it's funny. I just did what I did, but then you, I have been reading up on what psychologists look at with anxiety. And what they've written down fits what happened to me. And I just lived with that anxiety and did what I did, probably because of that old-fashioned never let them know you're hurt. But they've all been written up now. So if you – I just follow that pattern. I think they call it – well, I know they call it – it's ABC. The activating event, the belief, and the consequences – and you follow that, well, get it, everyone who's uh, watching or listening, uh, look it all up, and I lived that and got through it, and now I think I can put what happened to me into words based on facts and make it make sense. And that's the beauty of what has happened to me, uh, that I actually earn a living out of telling that story and hopefully inspiring one or two people to tell someone if they're struggling, whatever. Tell somebody. They won't be able to solve your anxiety, but just the fact that that somebody else knows is so important. So, so important. He's exactly right. And if you don't take my word for it, you've got to take his word for it. Paul Wade, one of the wisest guys I've ever spoken to, uh, like not only is he one of the greatest soccerers of all time, it's, that's one of the most inspirational stories I've heard and just s- such a motivational thing, him taking his story and uh, taking the lessons he's learned and helping young people, uh, people of all ages really, uh, with uh, any troubles they come across through the lessons he's learned throughout his life. Uh, so that was really, really good. I've got to say, just a little side note, how lovely is Paul Wade's voice is that, is that just me that thinks that? But Paul Wade has one of the nicest voices that I've ever heard. Like, it's, if I had to pick a word to describe it, it I've got to say it's so pleasing. Like, pleasing is the perfect word to describe it, Paul Wade's voice. So if Paul, if you're listening, just know uh, your voice is very pleasing and 
you're a very pleasing person to speak to, a very funny person to speak to. I know that was a very serious excerpt that we put out there, but the rest of the uh, the rest of the episode was good bunch of laughs. Episode twenty nine that was. Encourage you to go check that one out. But move on to a new uh, episode, a new guest, and a new sport. Now, rugby union. We've only had one rugby player on the podcast now, thirty episode history. But boy, what a rugby player this guy was. Through the 80s and 90s, uh, he had 72 caps for the mighty Australian national team, the Wallabies, of course, and he's still the all-time record point scorer for the Wallabies. If you don't know who this is already, you really, really should. One of the greatest fly halves of all time. He's in every person's greatest Wallabies lineup of all time. Michael Liner. Michael Patrick Thomas Liner, as they call him. This guy has an incredible story. So uh, I'm going to take you back to the Wallabies World Cup win. It's the 27th of October, 1991. They're about to play England at Twickenham, of course, the home of rugby in London. It's the Rugby World Cup final. It's absolutely huge. Uh, Michael Liner, episode 19, I believe. So check that one out. Here's the excerpt. I hope you enjoy it. So it's the game day of the final. You're against England at Twickenham. Talk us through your build-up and all your preparations, all the stuff you do before the game. Talk us through that. Um, you mentioned Twickenham. Twickenham's about a mile down the road from where I live at the moment. When, I, when we first we, – we, before this house we live in, we lived over in Twickenham. It's about – and uh, when we first moved there, um, probably about six, seven years ago to Twickenham, I, I remember I was in, in town and – in London and got in the back of a black cab and the guy sort of looked in the rear vision mirror, the driver looked in the rear vision mirror and looked at me and said, where to, where to, mate? Yeah, I said, I'll trick him. And he, he said to me, where else would you be going? And I said, well, I don't, I don't live at the stadium. <laughs> so all we did was talk about rugby the whole way home. And so, yeah, it's funny that, I, you know, winning the World Cup, um, in 91 at Twickenham, I'm, I'm sort of still here, uh, being gravitated towards it. Um, we, we, so on that game day, obviously extremely tense and nervous sort of day, we were out at a hotel called Oatlands Park, out um, not, not too far from here actually in Weybridge, and it was sort of a lovely big old country hotel. Um, the country Weybridge is a suburb, um, and but it had a nine-hole golf course around it and and sort of lots of open parks. So after breakfast, instead of sitting around and getting more nervous, et cetera, I, I always, before big games, would try and go for a bit of a walk and a bit of a kick if I could. And so I went out on my own. It was quite cold and grey and sort of misty, not wet, but, you know, dewy sort of stuff. And I took a ball with me and went for a bit of a kick and got tired of walking after the ball. And I remember there was this little creek with a bank on the side of it and um, so instead of kicking the ball and having to run after it, I, I actually kicked up the bank and let the ball roll down, trying to save some energy. But that's what I sort of used to do on, on game days is get out and do a little bit of phys- physical sort of activity, have a kick and have a bit of a walk in the morning, try and release that sort of tension. Um, I don't remember too much about the build-up um, other than, you know, I just wanted to get onto the field and, and start playing. Um, I... I, I didn't really enjoy the nerves um, before a game, um, particularly nervous around goal kicking and that sort of thing. Um, 
The ones out in the field, it was a very tight match. I think both teams um, didn't really want to lose the game and more as opposed to taking the attitude of let's just go out and win this thing, which we'd done previously, particularly the week before against the All Blacks, which was probably the best sort of game we played the whole tournament, particularly the first half. We just went out and won won the game in the first half. Against England, we knew we were the better team, but that doesn't necessarily give you the right to win the game. And so we had to go and do it. And England were very dogged and very dour, good defence, all that sort of thing. And it was a very conservative sort of match. So not a great game. Um, but we got there in the end. And I just remember at the end it was, you know, overriding sort of sensation of relief as opposed to, you know, absolute joy. Of course there was happiness and joy and all that, but it was more a sense of relief that actually, you know, there was the opportunity um, we took it and, and and that was my overriding sense. So you did end up winning it. How were the celebrations after? <laughs> um, having said that, was the relief was short-lived and it got pretty happy pretty quickly, I must say. Um, we, you know, we had a good celebration in the dressing room, et cetera, and then we are all into the bus um, to go into central London for a dinner that night, which is the end of the Rugby World Cup dinner with, you know, trophies and all that sort of thing. And, then we had friends and family, et cetera, back to the hotel where we were staying outside London. And by the time we got back to the hotel, it was about midnight. So the party was well underway um, when we got back there. And uh, needless to say, there wasn't a huge amount of sleep that night. And we were actually reasonably early on the bus um, to go to the airport to fly home the next day. So, um, um, but, yes, on the flight home, they... Um, couple of guys sort of paraded the trophy around the plane and all that sort of thing so yeah, it was um it was it was it was a great um time um in terms of you know you know the world cup even though it was just the second world cup it actually had a huge amount of meaning and um continues to do so this day and we had a ticker tape parade back in mel uh, back in sydney when we got home and I remember talking to Nick about it. We were very nervous that nobody would turn up, you know. It'd be a mum and dad and brother and sister on the side of the road waving to us. And But it was it was a great experience as well because it was, you know, just all the streets of Sydney as we went through the CBD there were lined with people and all that sort of thing. And that's when we realised just how much support we had back at home at the time. We had that, as I mentioned earlier, the inkling of it, but it was a huge event and really a great thing for rugby off the back of that, you know, um, sponsorship and TV and interest from kids in playing the game um, really sort of uh, peaked. Michael Liner's episode, as I said, episode 19, uh, a real good episode to listen to. If you are a big rugby fan of the podcast or if you're a fan of good stories, because Michael Liner, good stories and good people actually, because Michael Liner is a good person with an amazing story. Uh, of course, uh, if you have listened to the episode, you'll know that he suffered a stroke uh, in 2012, I think. Uh, so he's come back from that. And of course, his amazing career uh, as a Wallabies player, one of the greatest rugby players of all time. Uh, highly recommend that episode. Uh, it's, yeah, really good one. Like I said, but move on to the next snippet, our next highlight. This is from episode 30, another Aussie icon, as the title of the podcast says. This one's Alison Annan, the one of the greatest hockey players of all time. 
It's not at all unreasonable to say that. Of course, Hockey Roos legend, uh, Olympic gold medalist, sorry, uh, dual Olympic gold medalist, and of course now, which is what this uh, uh, excerpt, this grab is focused on, now the coach of the Dutch national team, Dutch women's national team, uh, number one ranked team in women's hockey heading into a big Olympic Games this year, hopefully, fingers crossed that happens, 2021 Olympics, Tokyo, we're all hoping for it, uh, and this uh, highlight, uh, it's actually got two separate bits in it. The first bit uh, is Alison chatting about uh, how being an international coach, uh, how, how to foster good team unity and just how to, how to be a good coach in general, really. Sounds very basic, but gave a very interesting answer. And the second part of it is her speaking about something that was especially interesting to me. I know Lockie agrees, uh, me being the stereotypical straight white man that I am, straight white sporty man that I am, uh, chatting about the role of gender in sport and coaching specifically, uh, which I found really interesting, uh, why she thinks um, women are more suited to certain types of roles in sport. Uh, but I'm waffling on a bit here. Uh, we should probably just crack straight in uh, to this highlight of episode 30 with Alison Annan. Hope you like it. I know I know. we've got lots of uh, aspiring national team coaches listening to the show. Have you got any uh, tips for keeping like a good team unity, uh, have, have good uh, bonds between all of your players at a national level because they all are at – Maybe four or five different clubs in the Netherlands case. Oh, look, the first thing, the first the, look, the, the first thing is you need to be open and you need to be uh, honest, uh, open in your communicating with the players, and that's back and forward. So you need to, if you're willing to, my motto is if you're, you need to, every question that you ask, you need to be willing to answer. Uh, so if I'm asking the players to be the best that they can be and I'm criticising or, you know, giving feedback on that, they should be able to do the same thing back to me. So that's open and honest communication with each other. So, it's you know, that's that's where it starts and that's where a good relationship with a player starts is being able to get the best out of each other. I need the players to get to, to become a better coach. They need me to become a, a better player. So, that's you know, it's a two-way thing. Uh, the second thing is I think that you need to allow uh, fun. A lot of the time, you know, you're in the national team, this has to be serious and you have to train hard and training hard is serious environment and you can't laugh and you can't – that's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Um, there are moments when you ask for full concentration, you need to be committed now 100% where, you know, where uh, we're serious about what we're doing and there's moments where you allow for a lot of fun and enjoyment. Um that needs to be part of your program. Fun needs to be part of your program. You need to have enjoyment and pleasure in what you're doing. You succeed uh, when you're enjoying what you're doing. Exactly. If you have a player turning up and she's just not happy, it's you, your job to find out why and it's your job to find to, 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 to change that. That's, that's, that's coaching. Coaching's not about what happens on the field. Look, there's trainers and there's coaches. A trainer... Uh, puts cones on the field and ensures that the what we're practicing is um, applicable to how we want to play. A coach coaches uh, um, behaviours. 
I think in probably the vast majority of sports around the world, you've got a really clear split between you're either a coach of the men or a coach of the women, but you have coached both men and women. And uh, ho- hockey just seems like a sport that is uh, more like the genders are less segregated where like the women can play with men and they're just probably viewed by as many people as men and uh, women can coach men, men can coach women. Is that well, – obviously it's a good thing, but uh, what, what are your views on why that is? Oh, look, I think it happens uh, not often enough. I think it's uh, – you know, this has actually been in a, 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 a subject of discussion the last months, why, you know, why there's not more women coaching – at all, you know, there's 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 a lack of women coaching in sport. I think there's a lack of women coaching men's sport. I think that there's there's this given that <clears throat> there's there's ne- it's never questioned why men can't why why men coach women, but it's always questioned why can women or why should women be able to coach men? Which is that's wrong. So I think it begins with that question, and it begins there. Why is it assumed? And I just think that that needs to be this. If you if you ask the same question there to men, then you we might we might be you know getting more more answers to it. I believe that <clears throat> women are more empathetic than men. I think that women uh, have more emotional intelligence than men. I think that men move much quicker into the ego side of things. You know, uh, who's you know uh, sort of. Um, gorilla, gorilla attitude, you know, hitting yourself on the on the on the chest, you know, making yourself big, uh, roaring, you know, using your voice. And women are much more empathetic and uh, have a higher emotional intelligence, so they're able to um, be much more successful with teams. I think, if given the chance. Now, I really hope you found that as interesting as I did, listening back to it. Um, yeah, Alice Dannon. Uh, yeah, just one word to describe that whole episode really is just interesting. Uh, that sounds a bit sarcastic, doesn't it? But it was truly fascinating stuff, uh, for a sport that neither of us know much about. Um, so I encourage you again to go listen to that one. Uh, if you have a bit of time on your hands or you just want to hear a good podcast episode, but moving on to our next highlight, our next best of this particular. Aussie icon, and boy, is he an icon. Russell Mark, the greatest double trap shooter of all time, officially, that is. He is uh, more than a legend of the sport. Like I said, greatest double trap shooter of all time. He was insane with a gun in his hand, uh, shooting the clay targets at World Championships, Olympics, Australian championships, the the amount of Australian championships is one is insane. I think it's like 37 or something. And he's, I think he's in his 50s. That's crazy. I might might be wrong there, but he's around that. And that is mental, mental. Russell Mark, should we just dive into this? Uh, I think it's episode 20. So I'm just going to dive straight into it. Russell Mark, episode 20. Enjoy our chat. Uh, the home Commonwealth Olympics, so your home in Melbourne. How was that special for you compared to the Sydney Olympics? Uh, Commonwealth Games in Melbourne was a fantastic time for us because obviously they had it on a range that I'd shot at all my life. So 
and it was another range that I, I found pretty easy to shoot on. And um, myself and my teammate, Craig Trimbath, who um, we won the Pairs Gold Medal, largely due to Craig, not me. Craig was, unfortunately for him, put in a really awkward situation where he knew exactly the score he needed to shoot you know, on the last round, and that's not a spot you want to be in. Uh, you know, I would have rather have done that than him, and he stood up and was counted and shot brilliantly in his last round, and it was the only Commonwealth Games gold medal I ever won was that one. You know, I married a woman that had won three of them, and she reminded me of it all the time. And it was the only time I ever won a gold medal was there. And I really think Craig Trimbar should have got both gold medals that day, not me, even though I think we may have shot the same score, the, the pressure that young guy was put under. Um, it was one of the best rounds I've ever witnessed. And I was glad that I got to witness it at a range on my hometown. So with this Commonwealth Games being in Melbourne, did you hang around a little bit more? Um, it was an awkward time for me because we just had our first child. Um, f- with Lauren, my wife, she was obviously competing in the in the games, and um, Holly, the girl that was going to cash in my gold medal from for the BM, she was from my first marriage. But Lauren and I got married in two thousand and four, and in two thousand and five, uh, we had Sierra, and we couldn't stay in the village. But for some stupid reason, the idiots that were running the the scene at the time said we had to stay in the village. Well, I think Lauren was still breastfeeding. And I just said, let me stay at home. I'll just drive to the range. And the bureaucracy in sport in Australia drives me crazy at times because some bureaucrat said, no, you've got to stay in the village. Well, I knew full well. There were track and field athletes staying at the Sheraton Hotel. They weren't staying in the village said, what do you think I am? Uh, so I took them to task on it and we stayed at home in the end. Common sense prevailed. Perry Crosswhite, the CEO of the team, got involved and said, well, why does he have to stay in the village? You know, let him stay at home. And we, Lauren ended up winning a gold medal as well. So it was the right decision. But sometimes bureaucracy really frightens me because the, the, the goal of everybody is to try to get the best result for the team. The best result for the team is not having a husband and wife try and breastfeed a kid in the Commonwealth Games village. That's not smart. Um, but sometimes the rule book needs to be ripped up. And sadly, it wasn't the last time I faced that. Um, I faced that same dilemma six years later at the London Olympics when they said, well, no, you can't room with your wife. They wanted me to room with Michael Diamond. Well, you know, Mick and I have roomed together all our lives. Um, he couldn't have cared less who he roomed with. But, again, the bureaucrats get involved and say, no, you can't do that, even though I could name half a dozen other guys there that were staying with their wives in the team. But what do you do? You cop it on the chin, you deal with the cards you're given, I guess. Yeah, uh, with the, uh, that whole debacle in the Commonwealth Games and obviously the Commonwealth Games commonly viewed as their kind of little sibling uh, compared to the Olympics, did that or anything else kind of seem a bit amateurish? I just seem petty. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that any sporting coach or anyone else would want to do anything other than what's best for their athlete. But some of the people that get placed in these positions, it's their moment of glory as well. And 
I, I really struggle with it and I always have. I, I think the athletes come first and anything that you can do to get that athlete across the line is what you need to do. And I just hate seeing people get involved that really don't know how the sport works or what goes on in someone's mind on the, the day of a major competition because even though my Commonwealth Games record wasn't great. I mean, I won one gold medal and a couple of silver medals and I think a bronze medal. But that might sound all right, but the Commonwealth Games really shouldn't be that hard to win. But for me, it was for some stupid reason. I know in in Manchester, I shot a world record score that lasted for a second. The guy beside me then shot and then broke my world record and I come second. I just wasn't destined to win at the Commonwealth Games. Um, and to finally win that one, even though you say it's the, the poor cousin, yeah, in some ways it is, but Australians tend to hold it very high. And I sadly probably didn't, and my record reflected that. And I'm probably, in hindsight, should have paid more attention to it. In 98, I pulled out of the team. That's sadly how much it meant to me. I didn't even try and make it in the end. I just said I'll take a job with Channel 9 as a commentator. And Again, when I got there, I regretted it from the moment I got there and never, ever pulled out of another team. That was the last team I pulled out of was that one. Um, you only get one go at life and you try and make the most of it. And pulling out of teams, I thought, was a pretty stupid thing to do. Now, uh, now have you heard that Russell Mark chat, just brace yourself for a chat that could be even better as hard as that is. But I've got to say, episode 21, which is the episode straight after Russell Mark's episode with Phil Anderson. We actually split that one into part A, part B. But anyway, this episode with Phil Anderson was an absolute rip snorter, a humdinger of an episode. He is one of Australian cycling's great pioneers, great icons, great athletes, one of the great people of Australian cycling. The, the pioneer of Australian cycling, you could even say. The first non-European to wear the yellow jersey in the Tour de France, which was absolutely huge for the great man Phil Anderson. He was up there with the best cyclists of his era. And he very nearly won the Tour de France a couple of times as well. But this is not what we're chatting about in this little snippet. You can go listen to episode 21 if you want to hear more about that. But we are talking about his relationship with the, you may say great, you may say controversial, definitely controversial. You may say, you may hate this guy, Lance Armstrong. Of course, you know Lance Armstrong, no doubt. The most famous cyclist in the world, probably, of all time. He was a teammate back in the day of Lance Armstrong, Phil Anderson was. And he talks about uh, some uh, his relationship with him. It's got some really, actually, this is a really funny story. I say this very genuinely. Uh, I probably still laugh at it to this day. So enjoy this with Phil Anderson. Speaking of young riders, uh, you actually raced with Lance Armstrong, probably one of the most famous cyclists ever, if not the most famous, uh, in his early days at Motorola. So can you tell us just about... Uh, what he was like as a teammate and as a guy uh, when he was a young man? Yeah, no, I, um, yeah, I'd, he joined the team, I think, in 93. Uh, I'd seen him the year before racing in a, uh, an event in, uh, in America and he was there on the national team, so he was 
yeah, he was there on the American national team, and I was there on the Motorola team. And um, you know, the director of my team came and said, "Oh, this young guy, Lance Armstrong, he's a triathlete, but he's uh, he's a strong bike rider, and he's he's um, have a look at him and see what you think. You know, do you think he'd be a, a good rider to have on the team? You know, at that stage he was only sixteen or seventeen, but he was a very good triathlete. You know, he was like voted." Uh, he was voted in America as the most likely to succeed, um, you know, triathlete, most likely as, as a junior in the whole of America. So he was a pretty good uh, talent. And, um, yeah, I watched him and, and uh, yeah, and the next year he, uh, he came on board uh, Motorola. Of course, this is all free cancer and, and so he's, uh, you know, very young. And uh, yeah, the first <clears throat> the first time, you know, I, I you, know, you say hi and the bunch and stuff when you're racing along. But the first time, once he signed, I was I was in the um, we we're having a training camp in Santa Rosa, so San Francisco uh, International Airport. I was just flown from Melbourne uh, there, and the guys are coming from all over the world, which is going to go up the road to Santa Rosa and so I'm first on the bus I'm pretty bugging after the flight and I'm right at the back of the team bus and uh, we pull up at the domestic terminal uh, uh, to pick up the next rider that came in it was a young Lance you know and I'd seen him the year before and he and he sort of looked he was he came in the front door and uh, the driver took his suitcase and, he, and Lance walked straight down but he marched straight down the uh, aisle towards me you know, and I just want to bloody rest, you know, and he gets right in my face like this and he goes, Phil Anderson, I'm so happy to be on the team with you. I can't believe it. You know, I've got a poster in you in my bloody bedroom and he's just banging on. And I was like, oh, jeez. <sighs> and he just started rattling off results and all this sort of shit, you know, like, you know, uh, you know like r- r- rattling off my resume sort of thing, you know, and he, and he said, put it there, buddy, you know. I'm Lance, you know, I've only just started racing and pretty excited to be on the team with you and I've requested to be your bloody uh, roomie for the team meeting and for the uh, training camp. You know, I'm going to be there for a couple of weeks. I thought, God, two weeks of this. I just wanted to bloody put my feet up. And um, and then, uh, you know, he rattles off. He said, oh, you've just gone through a messy divorce, haven't you? Oh, my mum's just... Bloody gone through those, bloody awful, you know, how did you manage? And I said, oh, I didn't want to bloody get into the personal shit. Didn't know him, you know. And he said, my mum's coming to the training camp like we're having a rest day. You should meet us. She's a bloody great girl, you know. He's trying to set you up. <laughs> trying, to, trying, to, trying to set me up with his mum. So uh, that, was the, that was the first time I met uh, Lance. You know, he put me in, in my place right away. But... Um, you know, I mean, we, we uh, got to know each other pretty well and, and um, you know, he just had a lot of energy and kind of, you know, it's kind of not my twilight years but towards the end of my career and, and he kind of reminded me of possibly what I appeared like when I was a young kid, you know, like just enthusiastic and, you know, wanting to win everything and, and um, you know, I remember we were at a, at a, at a race uh, in America uh, later that year, you know, we came back to race this um uh, it was actually the national championships. Lance was going really well, and so we were there to support Lance, you know. And there's also there's a million dollar prize too, so it was uh, financially it was quite big space. And uh, it was called the Triple Crown, and he 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 won the um, 
the first two races, and if you won the three, then you get a million dollars, like, you know, from a sponsor, from, you know, the prize. And so you won the first two races, and and, uh, and so it's all the pressure on, on this third race. And, of course, you know, everybody's trying to prevent him from winning it. And so uh, we made a plan how we're going to race it. You know, he was going to wait until the last lap or something, and then he was going to attack. And, and uh, we had to go up this really steep hill, we had to go up this really steep hill every lap and, you know, that was the spot where he was going to attack. And um, I swear, on the very first lap we went up there, we had to go there like 15, 15 times. Lance would come up to me and say, Phil, I feel good. I think I'm going to go next lap. I'm going to go. I said, Lance, what are we talking about? Oh, yeah, I'm feeling good, you know. I said, keep it easy. <laughs> you know, we got another 14 times. And so every lap he came up to me and he, and, he, and he asked me, you know, he told me, like it was a steep bloody wall, you know, it was only a couple hundred metres long. It's called the Mani- Maniac Walls in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, because we used to do this bloody race every year. We used to stand with showers, with uh, hoses and spray us all down, all the topless ladies up there, it's bloody, it's bloody great <laughs> crowds. And uh, every lap. And finally, you know, you know, it was like the penultimate last lap. Last, next lap, okay, just save everything for that last last attack, you know. <laughs> and and uh, you know, sure enough, the last lap he attacks, and oh, you know, he's got he spinning away and looking over his shoulder, saying, "Oh, keep going," you know, you already fucking nailed, you know. <laughs> and, so, and so he went on, and he and he won. He only got, you know, seven digits, but he made That's a whole other story. But anyway, it was funny. Uh, it was great. But, yeah, just to see that that uh, power that he had and that youthfulness, you know, and it was, you know, it was terrible what happened to his career. And, and um, yeah, to see what, what, uh, what became him was, was uh, shocking and what happened to the sport um, with the drugs. But anyway, you know, obviously he's retired now. Uh, but I don't think he has a. He doesn't have a moment of regret either. In fact, he does a really, he does a really good podcast as well. Yeah, he does. I definitely guy. recommend that to anyone listening. That's a, it's definitely a good podcast. Yeah, uh, maybe we'll have to get him on. Yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah, just uh, <laughs> hey, is it true? What Phil said about your mum? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was going to ask Phil. I was going to ask you. So yeah. obviously, um, Lance, being a young member of your team, was he your domestic? Was he the one pushing you up the hills while you had to piss? Yeah, he was. He was funny, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's actually photos getting around uh, to a while. Patrick Sheldon, cool. Lead me up the hill. Yeah, I used to piss on him. <laughs> no, nah, not really. I never did that. You know, I think you had to be there. Uh, you know, you got to go through that sort of schooling of, of uh, getting pissed on and you make sure that you never piss on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should have said that to my mates when I was bloody pushing them up a bloody hill and going, you buy up bastards, I'm going to piss on you tomorrow. You want to never do this again. <laughs> That's well learned. well taught anyway. I hope you laughed at that one. I hope you share a sense of humour with me because I found that more than rib-tickling, it is fair to say. And we'll move on to our uh, next and final guest, the final excerpt of one of our interviews. This one goes back a bit to when Jackson was my regular co-host of the show. Is it episode 18? Yeah, it's episode 18 with Brett Holman. Brett Holman, of course, World Cup goal scorer, twice a World Cup 
goal scorer for the Socceroos. One of few World Cup goal scorers for the Socceroos. He scored one of probably the second or maybe you could even say greatest World Cup goal for the Socceroos. Probably not too many people say the greatest. Tim Cahill, of course, number one, but probably the second best uh, goal for the Socceroos in World Cup history. And that's no mean feat, of course, with what we know is number one. So we spoke with the great man in episode 18, Brett Holman, about that World Cup, his career, he certainly went through some ups and downs and um, he's uh, still going through ups and downs in his life, as everyone does. Uh, so Brett Holm is still a good friend of the show. We've spoken to him a fair bit and we kept in touch with him. Lovely bloke. I hope you enjoy this final uh, highlights of 2020 for us. Uh, this excerpt of episode 18 with Brett Holman. Now, I don't know if you would get sick of talking about it. You've probably talked about it millions of times. But the goal against Serbia, what's rushing through your mind when you're smacking that ball from about 20 I don't get, I don't. I don't get sick of it. I don't get sick of it at all. No, it's um, – uh, look, I've said it plenty of times and I've said it at the same time over and over again. It, it goes in the back of my mind. My, my old man always said, uh, you know, I think it was every single game, if I have spoke to him before the game, have a go. Just have a crack. Um, and, and I was in the form of my life at that stage. You know, I scored against New Zealand before we left on tour to score the winner. Um, training camp in, um, uh, in South Africa, I was, I was just in form. I, you know, I was hitting the right notes. I felt really fit. You know, scored against Ghana. Uh, you know, I don't think nine out of ten times I would ever, ever shoot from that position again. Um, but, you know, that's, that's what happens when you're in that sort of form. Um, you know, you, you do have a crack. You hit it sweet enough. It goes in the in, in the bottom corner, and and uh, and you go absolutely nuts. But um, it's uh, it was a great feeling, the best feeling that that you could ever ever experience uh, in in as a as a career of football. That you could never experience anything else like that. Um, yeah, it was it was it was amazing. So I've got one last question about that World Cup. Um, obviously, me being there. I remember traveling out from Johannesburg, just in a car with three or four other of, of us, yeah. driving to Rustenburg, and realistically, they didn't plan well because it's crap stadium. Um, the public transport wasn't great. Yeah, we had to walk a little bit of the way, get on a bus, walk a little bit of the way from the car park. Um, but did you really appreciate all the fans coming all this way and doing that sort of stuff to support you guys? It was. It, you know what? I suppose. It, it, in one way, you almost you almost sort of would would love to the World Cup to almost sort of be um, expanded away, so you can almost sort of cherish those moments after the games and stuff like that, and really sort of mingle with the supporters and 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 because, like you said, that 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 is so, and and not not only South Africa, you know, we've we've played in 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 countries like Uzbekistan and and Jordan, and all of a sudden you see Aussie supporters with flags and stuff like that. It's like you know, and that's how great. That 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 yeah that that feeling that Australians have I suppose with with each other no matter where we are and and to have that that support you know, you know you're looking up when I scored the Ghana goal you go Ray and you, you run away and you see that just green and gold and 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 you know that's what you're there for you know for those people who travel around the world to to come and see a World Cup and and you know spend all their hard earned money and to 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 to, to go to games you know it's like. You know they're here to support you. Let's 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 give them you know give them something to cheer about in a way as well. And and 
I suppose I think sometimes supporters don't maybe feel that because it's it's very um, yeah maybe closed off sometimes too much because it's sort of you know in and out bus in bus out that sort of type of stuff and and you don't have that interaction and uh, it's a shame because you know I don't think there'll be one player who who wouldn't um, cherish and 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 really understand how how important supporters are because you know they they actually make that atmosphere and. and and create that almost drive sometimes for, for players in that second gear to, to, to give that little extra 10% and, 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 and push a little bit more. There you go. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I certainly enjoyed speaking to Brett Holman. Uh, definitely a thrill for Jackson and I, Jackson being in the stadium and uh, myself uh, being idolising uh, Brett, Holman, Brett Holman as a real hero growing up as you'll know if you've listened to episode 18 of the show uh but that just about wraps us up it's been a pretty long bonus episode we're up to 48 minutes and 40 seconds uh so yeah uh that was the final excerpt we've got another bonus episode coming tomorrow bit of a different theme and little uh i'll let you in on a little secret i think we've got a guest i think i've lined up a guest for tomorrow's bonus episode so uh i hope uh, I will be your in your ears tomorrow, uh, dear listener. And I look forward uh, to you hearing me and me appreciating you for listening to this podcast that we call Where Do We Begin? Thanks for listening again and have a wonderful day. Wonderful.